Welcome to the Space of the Waste, featuring host Melody Edmondson. Do you struggle with the right look to complement your body shape? Have you tried so many different looks and styles only to be disappointed time and again? You've landed on the right program. We'll show you how to make the right style work in your favor. Now, here is Melody Edmondson. Welcome to the Variety, the Variety Channel of uh, Voice America. I want to thank you very much for tuning in today, as you do on Tuesdays, to the Space of the Waste. I am your host, and if you have missed any episodes, please go to www.voiceamerica.com and please listen to the past episodes. Also, if you need a visual of my short-waisted, long-waisted by body shape, please go to the Pinterest boards under the space of the waist and find your board, whether it's short-waisted square, short-waisted triangle, long-waisted hourglass, long-waisted rectangle, whatever you are, we've got them all there. Uh Also, I want to mention for you to please go to Amazon.com and purchase book one by C, initial C, Melody, M-E-L-O-D-Y, Edmondson, E-D-M-O-N-D-S-O-N, The Guidebook, which is book one, your fashion guide based on body shape and the space of the waist. We have a full Voice America global weekly audience of more more than 246 million people in 167 countries and 35 million a month. So I really hope a whole lot of you are turning into my show on the Variety Channel today. And we are very blessed today. We have Sally DeMarco here to speak to us about Queen Elizabeth II the historical fashion statement that Queen Elizabeth made and all of her heirloom monochromatic looks. We're going to have uh, the expert tell us about Queen Elizabeth and what she's given to the entire world as it relates to her historical fashion statement. And here we are with Sally DeMarco. Hi, Sally. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction. Um, well, I've been privileged to work in, in the fashion design education industry for 40 years, so I've done a lot of research on Queen Elizabeth. Um, and one of the things about her was she was not one really to follow fashion, although when she died, she was a fashion icon, which is interesting. It was really her sister, Princess Margaret, Margaret who was the fashion plate, and who eventually introduced a uh, the queen, well, before she even became a queen, to new and established fashion designers. Um, So Queen Elizabeth, she made a a big fashion statement actually before she became queen when she married Princess Philip uh, of Greece on November 20th, 1947. The then princess wore an intricately detailed wedding dress, and that was created by Brett. British fashion designer Norman Hartnell, who was one of her favorites. And it was very fit and flared, just like, you know, you talk about the uh, space of the waist. It, it, they knew where her waist, her designers knew at that point where her waist yes. was. And she was, to me, a perfect hourglass, Queen Elizabeth II. Perfect hourglass. 
small, petite, but she was perfect. And at that time period, clothing was fitted to the body. We use things called darts, which are triangular shapes that are sewn, and they accommodate a female's body um, figure, shape, and curves and bumps, which we have quite a few. Uh, and so, you know, the garment was just totally beautiful. She was young. So they created for her a fit and flared floral motif gown, which was inspired by Botticelli's painting of Primavera. And that was symbolizing the coming of spring, although the wedding was in November. <laughs> it brightened up things. It brightened up things. It brightened up the, probably the dryness of that time period. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so an estimated 350 women worked on the creation of the gown over a three-month time frame. Notice it was just women. <laughs> no men were work, worked on it, which was, I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, the exquisite, it was ivory silk, and it came, the gown came, um, the silk for the gown, rather, came from China. They, they imported it. The gown featured a 15-foot train. Wow. and was entrusted with 10,000 hand-sewn seed pearls and crystals imported from America. So we contributed, America contributed to the wedding. And at the time, Britain was still in post-war period. So the okay. um, government gifted the princess 200 additional coupons to pay for the very expensive gown, to pay for the, mostly for the silk and things like that. Um, and women were actually sending, they wanted something, this beautiful event to take place because it was such a, you know, rough time period. So women yeah. were sending their coupons that, that was rationed to them to put it toward the gown, but she didn't accept it. Queen Elizabeth uh -huh. Accepted. She used her own coupons, and then the government, she petitioned the government to get the 200 more additional coupons, which she did. So oh, my gosh. I can't believe this train. 15-foot train encrusted with 10,000. Just imagine 10,000 hand-sewn seed pearls and crystals. What can you imagine? Wow. Were they real pearls, you think? Uh, yeah, well, they may, I doubt it if they were real pearls, but who knows? Who knows? Um, no, I don't know if it would, they were real, real, you know, the real McCoy, but um, uh, with that many, I doubt it. How but gorgeous. It, and, and it wouldn't have been necessary, but how beautiful. It was. It was really a beautiful time period. Uh, uh, well, the world wanted that. They wanted to see something happy because of the the war that had been going on and all that kind of stuff. Um, but he was trying to carry that fifth <laughs> going down, trying to carry that fifteen foot thing in back. Yeah, tiny little girl to do that. Do you think? Uh, let's see. Elizabeth was was a fashion icon. I think of her as one, and she dressed to rule. She had a strong look, I think. How did she develop her refined, regal, elegant style, do you think, Sally? Well, one of the things that she said when she, you know, uh, became queen, is she says, I have to be seen to be believed. And when you're small, it's hard to be seen. So she had to come up with different ways that she could be seen. So the monochromatic, which is all one color look, 
or as it's, it can also be called blocks of color or a pillar of color, and it's from head to toe. Uh, and that's what she adapted eventually. It didn't happen all of a sudden, but brightly colored looks, it, it was what made her stand out in, the, in a crowd. Um, and it allowed her to stand out. And when the crowds come to see the queen, I'm sure you know everyone's seen, watched it on television and all, they can be 12 rows of people, masses of people. So then they want to see a little bit of the queen. They don't care if it's a hat or whatever. So she needed to be seen. And that's what she came up with. All one color. Um, and um, also her security detail had to see her too. She couldn't get lo just lost in the crowd. Yes. So that's what they, um, you know, they came up with. Uh, and then she took her garments and they were ex accented with the heirloom brooches that were gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And those were all real, the real, uh, real jewels. Um, and that she, the brooch always went on her left shoulder, uh, towards the left shoulder, always a hat. Gloves, often white. They were made by Cornelia James. That was the um, glove designer. And they had to be, the gloves were usually a certain length uh, for everyday wear, maybe up to the wrist. But then for evening wear, they used to, during that time period, they would wear the long gloves all the way up to the shoulders. Yeah. Um, so, and if, let's say if it was raining outside, uh, she always carried a custom made birdcage umbrella Fulton umbrella to match and she owned about a hundred birdcage umbrellas that were clear they were all clear sort of plastic but they had a substantial band of color around the uh, the edge of the umbrella which uh, which always matched her outfit oh I wow cool these were all made by the same guy Fulton right you said yeah no so now I want one of those umbrellas <laughs> to match all of my outfits. I thought that was so clever because they that were, is. And they were clear. So even though she held it over her head or, or somebody held it for her, probably, you could still see through and see the queen, which was That's right. I thought ingenious, that was ingenious. Ingenious, really. Yes. <laughs> you know, but she wanted to be seen and she was right. And you know, you're gonna you have to see me to believe me. Yeah. Also, one thing about Queen Elizabeth, she was a staunch supporter of the UK fashion industry. Her clothing was a singular working uniform costume and was a means of communication. That's important for us to know. It's also a symbol of power, what she was wearing. But you know, have to understand the garments were beautifully made, fitted to the body, and they just had style that lasted. So her reign began at a time before women were rarely seen at the highest level of government in the Western world. So she helped the standard in politics and diplomacy for women's wear because there wasn't, you know, there weren't women in power at that point. So she had to come up with a, almost a, what we call, we adapted it and called it a power suit. So a lot of fit and flare dresses she wore at that time, because as I said before, the waist was an important part of the of the game, of the fashion game. Dress and skirt suits, elegant coats, beautifully, all beautifully tailored. Um, you know, if you really, uh, anyone looks at her clothing, pictures of her clothing, you'll see how beautifully tailored her coats and suits were. Um, her sleeves then wrinkled, if sleeves aren't set right, um, the proper way into an armhole, they're going to wrinkle and all that. And you don't see any of that in her clothing. Her clothing was just really fitted to her body. Yes, very and much. Wore a lot of brimmed hats and squared heeled, often black patent leather shoes and handbags. 
those sort of shaped her familiar silhouette. Tell me a little more about the handbag, because she kind of yeah, carried a similar style on her arm, I noticed. Right, yeah, it was very, it was almost all the same. It's been rumored that the Queen owned an estimated 200 Lawner London handbags. And of course, now I want one of those too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but you know, of her sort of stability, she favored black, black patent cream and gold bags, but you saw her mostly with the black one. Now, Lawner of London is an established luxury brand of distinction with international dignitaries and royalty choosing Lawner London as the accessory, accessory for state and public functions. The handbags start at about a thousand each, but they... Ooh. Way, they go way up. So and and the Queen loved their handbags so much that they company Lawner London received the highest of all the types of awards, which was called the Royal Warrant in 1968 from the Queen. Wow. So the handcrafted leather bags, they make them a little bit different. They made them a little bit differently for the Queen as opposed to the general public. The, if you if you ever see pictures of her wearing one, the handles when she has her arm and they're much longer, the handers, handles to the handbags are much longer because it made it easier to, for the queen to hang on her arm because she had to shake a lot of hands. Yes. So her, her handbags were also constructed much lighter than their normal handbags that they put out on the market because it was easier also for her to, to carry. And when she went out to greet her people, you know, sometimes she could be out there an hour or two with this handbag hanging on her, on her hand. So they, so they made it custom designed it for her. And now inside that handbag, inside has been rumored she carried a lipstick, handkerchief, compact mirror, mints, reading glasses, Another spare set of gloves. Gloves were important. You, know, you would see her often wearing gloves. And although they were stylish, another reason she wore gloves was because she shook a lot of hands and it was a little bit more sanitary. Yes. So, and so just in case she would lose the gloves, there was always an extra set that was the same type of glove that she was wearing always in her in her purse. And also a picture of the, of the late Prince Phillips was always in there which was kind of sweet. Now, tell me something, because I heard a rumor that she somehow used her purse to communicate. Oh, yeah, she was clever. The <laughs> queen was a clever woman. Um, yeah, some of the things that she did with her purses, there was a whole language that the people around her, her security detail knew all about. And so if she was attending a dinner and she put the purse on the table, that meant that she was sending a signal that the dinner was soon to be over. Whoever was serving the dinner or whatever is going, this is it. I'm, I mean, I'm ready to head out. And if she, let's say, was holding a conversation with a certain someone and she changed hands with her purse, it meant that the conversation was over. And so she would just be escorted away from the person that she was talking to. So she would, she would send signals like a pro um, just by the use of her handbag uh, with the people, with her security detail and the people around her that were yeah, around. Yeah, they understood the, la the purse language. Hey, what about the uh, other choices that sort of became part of her identity? Yeah, the, the, uh, she had a couple of, a lot of things, actually. The queen always wore hats. 
That's a not to old tradition that women should cover their hair in public. Eventually, those kinds of rules um, were a little bit relaxed towards the end, but she always had that nice hat on her head. The queen's favorite milliner was Rachel Trevor Morgan. The milliner was told to make the hats so they would not obscure the queen's face. So the hats had to be designed a certain way that you would the the people would be able to see the queen's face when she was out there. The hats also could not be very tall uh, either because the hat would get stuck when she exited her car. Uh, and they didn't want that to happen with the hat falling off. It was too high. Okay. She always, other things that she did, she always incorporated colors, motifs, and accessories, which spoke to the event that she was attending. Um, she sported a very clean cut and a tailored look, beautifully fitted garments. And, her, and as I've mentioned before, her fitters knew exactly where the space of the queen's waist was located. And she, one interesting is thing is that when she traveled, she always had a black outfit in her suitcase just in case someone, there was an unexpected de death and she had to attend a funeral, which is kind of interesting. Um, yeah. <laughs> when she would wear a coat, taking her coat off in public was always frowned upon because it's very unladylike. <laughs> so you couldn't do that in public when, uh, as a queen. And the other thing that was interesting also when she would uh, have uh, events she had to go to that were outdoors. Her um, dressers had to think about the weather often, you know, besides adding the umbrella that matched. But if she was going to go to an event and it was super windy outside, they would mm -hmm. sew weights at the bottom of her garment so that the wind blew, that the garment wouldn't just be blowing all over the place. Which Perfect is Perfect sense. Yeah. Makes That's a lot because you know she attended a quite a few uh, outdoor events and so anyway hose and pantyhose uh were required she you know she never went out without wearing hose or pantyhose like they do nowadays <laughs> so and when dressing informally she always loved to wear this a silk hermes headscarf Whenever you would see the queen with a headscarf, it always uh, was a beautiful, luxurious silk headscarf on her head. That was one of her favorite ex accessories besides wearing a hat. Now, informally, when she was at home, she wore what was called the Balmoral Tartan Skirt. So members of the royal family could be allowed to wear the tartans and the kilts only with the queen's permission. Is that nice. interesting? Okay. Anyway... So over the years, the queen's style has changed. So anyway, um, it evolved. Her, her style evolved from her coronation in 1952 and over the, the decade that when she became queen. So um, in 1952, at the age of 25, Queen Elizabeth II became monarch of seven independent states. So we have to have a little bit wow. of history here. Um, the seven independent states were the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Pakistan, and Ceylon, now called Sri Lanka. She was head of state for 69 years, queen of 32 sovereign states, head of state of 15 Commonwealth realms at the time of her death. She attended an average of 300 events per year. 
and she was acquainted with 15 prime ministers and 14 United States presidents. Can you imagine? Wow. A blessed reign. But anyway, Elizabeth's early fashion years were defined by pieces that were created by her court dressers, as they were called, and designers. Uh, her designers were Norman Hartnell and Hardy Ames at that time. Now, this is in the 50s when she ascended the throne in 1952. Um, so, but the Queen's style evolved over the years from she was a fashionable young monarch at 25, and then eventually as she matured to a more regal direction. So on her coronation day, we have to talk about the coronation gown, which ex was exquisite. She wore Norman Hartnell's, that was one of her designers, couture on her coronation day, which was June 2nd, 1953. Now, Hartnell submitted nine designs to the queen for the gown, and she accepted design number eight. Um, so the gown was short-sleeved, which um, was interesting because, you know, that was many, many years ago. And sometimes it was frowned upon to women to be wear short sleeves, but that did happen. The gown was short sleeves. It had a sweetheart neckline and it nipped in at the waist and it flared down to the hemline. So it really accentuated that her waist and then it just beautifully flared to the hemline. The gown took Hartnell, the designer, eight months to research design and to get the workmanship crew to create the uh, this beautiful gown. Right. It was made. Yeah, it was such. It was beautiful. I've seen pictures of it. It was before my. Well, I was pretty young, too young to remember any of this. So, it was made of white satin, embroidered in various florals of pastel colors at the queen's suggestion. So she had her input into the design process. Yeah. She wanted to represent the, you know, all the commonwealth that she was in charge of. So the floral emblems that she requested and they were beautifully embroidered represented the United Kingdom and the commonwealth um, with the English roses, Scottish thistles, Welsh leeks, Irish shamrocks, Canadian maple leaves, New Zealand silver ferns, Pakistani wheat, Australian wattles, and the South African protea. Um, those were all embroidered on this gorgeous gown. Uh, so the carnation gown has been described by the Royal Collection Trust as one of the most important examples of 20th century fashion design. And the queen actually rewore the coronation gown several times at other important events, which I find kind of interesting. She didn't wear garments one time and that was it. So um, so at the beginning of the ceremony, which took place in Westminster Abbey on her head, she wore the St. Edward's crown, the real McCoy, which was made for the coronation of Charles II in 1661. And at the end of the coronation ceremony, she left wearing the imperial state crown on her head. And you'll often see pictures of Elizabeth seated with the crown on her head and the, the uh, gown. The gown also had an elaborate train attached to it, too. So anyway, that's that was her big fashion statement when she became queen. But as the decade, the 50s, the, uh, that de decade evolved, gone were the many drab looks of the, her war and post-war fashion. She's got to remember the war, it was war, the war had ended and all that. And so uh, clothing was pretty drab, army green khakis and things, denims and things like that. So 
Uh, all that was replaced with her white gloves and abundance of, of accessories and jewelry and the full skirts and nipped in waist that were dominating the aesthetics of that period. So things changed a lot after the war. So, and what happened was that the new and modern queen embraced Christian Dior, a new designer that came into the scene. He introduced what was called a new look. Again, it touches on the space of the waist, the new look uh, emphasize a woman's waist and she the queen started to wear his designs and she charmed the world by wearing nipped in waist super full circular skirts and uh, and some pencil silhouettes which uh, skirt became similar so a little bit about christian dior which is important since he became one of the queen's favorites he was one of the most important Par parisian fashion designers of the 20th century He's the one, after the war, he restored Paris as the fashion capital of the war at that time, which was in the late 40s. Um, Dior adored Britain, and, they, and the British people really loved him. But it was her sister, Princess Margaret, the fashion plate, who met him on a trip to Paris. And Dior ended up creating Princess Margaret's uh, voluminous, beautiful gown for her 21st birthday. So Margaret introduced Dior to Elizabeth, and Elizabeth kind of fell in love with him. Wonderful. Oh, yeah. So Queen Elizabeth would often request private appointments with Dior for herself and her sister, Princess Margaret. Um, so what would he created many pieces for them? So any of the pieces of his clothing that the royals wore were always labeled worn by Princess Margaret or Queen Elizabeth. And after they were worn, then he could make duplicates and sell those. So duplicates made after they were worn by the royals sold out extremely quickly because, you know, of course, he labeled them worn by Princess Margaret and Queen or Queen Elizabeth, which was a great marketing uh, PR for him. So he became pop. Uh, uh, they it, he became popular in 1947. It was his first collection, which he introduced, and that was called he called it the new look. Um, so Dior's new look used lots of yardages of fabric because his skirts they could be pencil skirts, but his full skirts could use up to 13 and a half yards of fabric. Wow! In the world, it, this was considered a shameful waste by those who previously scrimped and saved during wartime. So they thought this I'm was sure. you know too much too much you know it's going to cost a lot more money and all that, but. It kept the factories humming, making textiles, making clothes. So it kind of revved up, you know, uh, it revved up the the money making process for sure. for for Paris. I guess it helped Paris and um, everyone else, and employed people in those industries. So that's you know what happened when you're putting out all those yardages of fabric. You got the textiles industry going and you got the sewing machines humming and that sort of thing. So the new look featured rounded shoulders, cinched in waist, as I explained before, and very full skirts. It celebrated ultra femininity and opulence in women's fashion after years of fashion and fabric restrictions and shortages during the war. There were shortages during the war. If you, know, you had to have a coupon to buy anything and there wasn't anything exciting except military type of fabrics. So uh, so it was a different era. So Dior offered not only a new look, but a new outlook, as it was called. And the queen embraced it. 
Unfortunately, Dior died in 1957. He and but the, the house of Dior still lives on, and we can still purchase Dior gar, uh, garments. And when I worked in the fashion industry, I had the privilege of working on some of his pieces. Uh, here, right here in Maryland, we had the contract with the house of Dior to do his uh, fur-lined coats. So, wow. but, so soon after ascending the throne. Uh, Queen Elizabeth actually was, she had every fashion magazine and newspaper, when, especially when she appeared for a royal viewing at the Empire Theater, wearing a tuxedo-like Hartnell gown, her designer, in black and white, wide lapels, and a halter design. She was all over the um, every major newspaper at that time, fashion magazine, as said before, picked her up. Um, it was dubbed a magpie because I guess she looked hot in it. <laughs> so, but she never wore it again after that. <laughs> it sounds a little masculine for her. I think of her as more feminine, but I'm sure it was a departure from her fit and flair. Right. Uh, dresses monochromatically. Right, and there she shows up in a tuxedo type of wedding gown, and I've seen pictures of it. She looked really stunning, but it, you know, the world wasn't ready for that kind that, of look. Yeah, so it got it got bad somewhere. It's in some closet. Maybe it's in some historic collection somewhere. She didn't I, wear it again. She never wore it again. I read. <laughs> it again which is interesting and the other thing that elizabeth made fashionable was the tiara you know she hers was of course real when she went to her evening events she always wore a tiara on her head but those of us that are from the 50s i mean i was pretty young then but i do remember that prom time the, the girls that were much older than me always wore their little fake tiaras on their head and you could go to a department store and buy a tiara but that's where it came from was from queen elizabeth actually launched that sort of fad oh how cool so the accessory became popular with young women and brides brides wore it and, and with the veil on, on top they still do they still do it's a choice you know it's all due to queen elizabeth she also favored dresses over pants because an old rule says that royals should never wear trousers while on duty. Although she was seen photographed, I think, one time with pants, wearing pants. Um, she believed a lot on dressing for the occasion, whether she was attending events out of the country or, or in Britain. So at, examples are at a 1957 state dinner in Ottawa. She wore a green and white Canadian maple leaf dress and paying homage to, because the maple leaf is a, on the flag, on their flag, and so she was paying homage to Canada. Uh, she was always very attentive when it came to accessories. She was fond of wearing a delicate string of pearls, dainty watch, not these big watches that we have today, and it was just a plain old watch. That just mm -hmm. yeah. else. And often um, a statement leather belt when she wore a skirt. Which okay. Much of it because she always wore jackets over her skirts, but okay. So then we get into after that, after she wears the uh maple leaf dress in the late 50s, then we're moving into the 60s, which we'll call the uh barefoot hippie looks. How did that? How did that happen? <laughs> how did that get reflected in uh? Anything Queen Elizabeth's fashion statement? I would think not much. 
The 60s are a tough time for fashion, you know, for fashion. It wasn't too exciting. For elegant people, it was a tough time. <laughs> right. The swinging 60s may not have entirely reflected in the Queen's own fashion. Um, what we do see what evolved in the 60s with the Queen's style, the Her Majesty experimented with more color. But okay. we had had all those psychedelic colors and stuff like that in the 60s. Specific, specifically is when the blocks of color and pastels came in onto her life at that point. She also sported a lot of changing shapes similar to that time, like frock coats, those shift dresses that sort of flared out. Um, geometric prints were uh, popular and she, she wore a lot of those. And she was a little bit of the cost, a little bit of a scandal because she wore shorter hemlines at that time. Which of uh-huh. course we saw the introduction of the miniskirt, which she did not. She did not wear the miniskirt, but her skirts were usually below hem, below the knee, and they got a little tiny bit shorter, which the queen mother was frowning upon and things like that at the time. So then <laughs> came back. She lowered. She got tired of hearing all the complaints. But it's a decade which saw the first inklings of what would become her style signature, her structure, skirt suits, coat suits, pearls, brooches, and all that. This was also a great period for the Queen's longstanding love affair with headwear, from hats, pill boxes. She sported turbans at different events, which was a a little bit of a different look, but those were there at that time. Scarves furs to a floral whimsies. So um, one of the evening gowns you know, were always elaborately beaded and embroidered by designed with a modest cut to befit a queen. So a uh, vast majority of her state banquet gowns were subdued hues of blues and cream. It, you know, she wanted to be seen out in public, but for those inside events, uh, you know, she kept the colors at this time a little bit muted. Um, but one of the interesting things is that her evening gowns, as I mentioned, were heavily, were usually heavily beaded and embroidered. And so to make the heavy beaded gowns that she was wearing comfortable, if, anyone, if anyone's ever worn or, or you try to lift a, a beaded gown, it can, it can weigh like 25, 30, 40 pounds. Um, what they would do, her dressers or her designers, they would, uh, they would, uh, pad the back of her dresses with layers of lining so that w- the dr- the gown would be um, much more comfortable. So they were sewn like, it was almost like a, a cushion at the back of her yeah. gown. Mostly saw the front. I can see how. So that when it would, and, and probably at the shoulders too, could, that would make it a lot easier for somebody to, you know, to wear that type of gown. So if any of your audience there out there sews and they do a lot of beaded gowns, they may want to take that little trick. A lot of inner structure because of the weight and then the weight that could also become scratchy if you could feel anything, you know. So, you know, fashion becomes, it's architecture. You have to, you have to build a, a foundation for it. And, um, well, at least in the old days, that's what we did. We built a foundation then we put our beautiful beading and whatever on, on the surface. So, um, and a repeated theme was dressing for the occasion. Again, she always, always dressing for the occasion and time she chose colors that asserted her power. Um, 
So the queen used also her jewels and clothing to pay homage to her guests and hosts. Um, an example of that, when visiting Pakistan in 1961, she wore a gown with an emerald and white train like the Pakistani flag. Again, dressing for and being respectful of the occasion. So she did a lot of that. I mean, we do it nowadays, you know, come, come St. Patrick's Day and all, we'll have uh, shamrocks and those kinds of things. So, uh, so she, she was, she did it in a much more classier way, uh, and stylish way. I'm sure. Yeah. And so, so what uh, happened then when in 1970s, uh, how did color come into the queen's wardrobe or style? Yeah, she really uh, went fast forward into color. Her Majesty embraced the shifting palette of the time. She was exploring brightly colored monochromatic, which is all one color looks from head to toe, matching everything, including her umbrellas, as I mentioned before. So it's been rumored that the Queen's dressers at the time suggested that she needed to stand out in the crowd. And the reason she wore such bright colors eventually was so that people could see her more easily at public appearances. Um, and I touched upon that little bit of that before, but it really didn't, this um, all one color look really did not happen until the 70s. So she was, yeah. um, anyway, and she was also one time in the 70s, she was photographed wearing pants in public, just one time. That's during a royal tour of Canada in 1970, a young tailor created a silk trouser suit to update her look. But that was it. She put that back in the closet and said, this is not for me. Um, so at, at, a little bit about dressing for the occasion, as I mentioned before, uh, on a visit to Saudi Arabia in 1979, she wore a longer skirt in a deep red color, which was of deep significance. The red was of deep significance in the region. Also red's a power color. So she exerted, she was, they could, they knew she was the queen. She was in charge. And another example is she wore one of Australia's national colors, bright yellow, during her stay there in 1970. Um, and in 1954, going back a little bit, the queen received what was called the wattle brooch from the people of Australia. So when she was there in the 70s, she wore that brooch uh, when she went back to visit the country. She always said people gave her gifts and things like that. She always wanted them. Uh, she would wear them and things like that to let them know she appreciated it. And also as a respect to that country. So she exactly. did a lot. Very thoughtful woman, I think. Super thoughtful, of course. Yeah. So, and then we go into the 80s. <laughs> yes, 80s and 90s. <laughs> so, um, her when we get into the 80s and in the 90s, her fashion aesthetic changed a, a, a somewhat. Um, it was It was a time in which there was a softer and more overtly feminine aesthetic for Her Majesty, perhaps influenced by the fact that she was in, now she was increasingly sharing the national stage with two women. So before this, she was, you know, women were not that many women in power. But then... <laughs> Don't know what that is. Go ahead. Anyway, um, there was a decade uh, where well, the queen queen was a grandmother, and then she had Princess Diana and Margaret Thatcher to 
compete with, not compete with, but to share the stage with. She had to all of a sudden share the stage with two women, and that was Margaret Thatcher and Princess Diana. Um, and as we know, Princess Diana was such a, a wonderful fashion plate. So, yes, she was. And also during this time, the queen became a grandmother. Uh, and that was another thing. It was it, it, that kind of changed her look. Her heels became lower, and the black lawner London handbag became became her mainstay. She always had that hanging around her uh, her purse. Her formal dress took on more of an oversized puff sleeves of the era. I don't know if, if um, at least I remember vividly in the eighties, everything became oversized. There were. Mm-hmm. Pat, shoulder pads, those sleeves were two, a yard of fabric in each sleeve and, and that kind of stuff. So she played with sort of blouses that uh, had bows in the front, uh, bolder florals and a lot of pastel hues. Um, and then one time she came to America to meet, to meet President Ronald Reagan in 1983. The, the queen wore a gown embroidered with California poppies to honor his home state, which was really, really nice. And as I mentioned previously, it was always about um, dressing for the occasion and, yes. you know, repres- and just paying homage to where she was staying or visiting. Um, and to show affection for Scotland in 1999, upon the formation of the Scottish Parliament, she wore an outfit in shades of heather and thistle. Heather and thistle are their flowers, their safe flowers. And the queens also seemed to rock themed dressing for her 50th wedding anniversary. She showed up with wearing gold from head to toe. Gold gown, gold shoes, gold bag. She was very matchy-matchy, which isn't too popular nowadays, but it was back then, Every you know. So everything was at this event. She described Prince Philip has her strength and stay for, for that event. So Okay. Who, kind of, was, who helped her personally? She had a personal dresser that she was, was very close to. Tell me about her. Very close. So in 1994 and until the Queen's death in 2022, British fashion designer, dressmaker, and milliner, Angela Kelly. She goes by Angela Kelly, but her real name is Mary Angela Kelly. Um, her first name, rather. Served as the personal assistant and senior dress to her royal majesty. And Angela Kelly uh, wrote a couple fashion design books. I mean, not fashion design, book, books about the Queen, which were approved by the Queen. Um, she wrote a 2012 book called Dressing the Queen, the Jubilee Wardrobe. And then in 2019, she wrote another book called The Other Side of the Coin, The Queen, the Dresser, and the Wardrobe. So if any of your listening audience wants to, want to pick up one of those books and learn a little bit more about the Queen and her style, her fashion, those are great books I would recommend. Um, she also, during this time, in addition to uh, to, to Kelly, uh, Stuart Parvin was another one of her dressers. He also designed for her, but it was really Angela Kelly who was re- who just became her best friend until the end. Um, and a fun tidbit that she uh, mentioned in one of her books was uh, that people used to bet on the color of the queen's hat 
Um, it, there's a popular activity in, in Britain, and it's the Royal Ascot races in Berkshire, and the Queen would always uh, attend the events, and she would always wear a hat. So a, a big betting thing was what color was the Queen's hat point? <laughs> That's funny to me. <laughs> I think it's funny, too, but... It also the betting happened within within the employees of the queen. So so what Angela Kelly would do ahead of this event, the queen's current dresser at that time, Angela Kelly, as as I mentioned, will she would lay out several decoy hats to stop anyone catching sight of the hat Her Majesty actually would in, intended to wear, and with inside knowledge, betting vast amounts of money on the correct color the queen's hat. So she had. I love know, it. <laughs> on the inside and not just and not only on the outside um so that was kind of a little interesting tidbit absolutely then uh 2000 until her death in 2022 how was the queen's wardrobe defined uh by bold color dressing yeah, she got bold with her colors, which is interesting. She got older, but she got bolder. So it was during this period, like in 2002, that she, uh, unfortunately, at that period, she also had some tragic events. She lost her beloved mother and sister. She was extremely close to both of them. So that did happen. Um, but her color palette just exploded. So in her later years, the queen dressed with more zest than ever, thanks to a closet full of brighter colors, brilliant prints, vibrant florals, and more flattering fits. Um, and then she kept uh, pushing the dressing for the occasion uh, uh, thing too. So in 2008, at a state dinner to Slovakia, she wore high leather boots, which was a, a big change from the spa leather she would always wear that was a departure from her usual leather pumps and uh, I didn't think we don't we in public we didn't see the queen wearing boots much except maybe that one time I mean she she was an avid hunter and stuff like that but that she did on her own leisure time when she wasn't in public so I'm sure she wore boots then so anyway that the decade is defined by bold colors great hats Pearls, brooches, tweed skirts, and that black handbag was still with her. So, um, uh, another and uh, one example, uh, another example of her uh, dressing for the occasion, as I call it, uh, at a dinner in Canada in 2010, the Queen wore a white lace gown with Swarovski crystal uh, maple leaves glittering across her shoulder because the maple leaf is is. Uh, on the uh, Canadian flag. Uh, and another example, at a state visit to Ireland in 2011, she wore a deep green wool crepe coat and a corresponding green printed silk dress upon arrival. Because green, of course, is the color associated with Ireland. And then to the state dinner, she wore a gown designed by her dresser, Angela Kelly, and that was adorned with 2,000 tiny shamrocks. Can you imagine? Wow. Um, other examples, annual Buckingham Palace reception for members of the diplomatic corps in the UK. That is one of the most formal, they call it a white tie event in the royal calendar. And for this occasion, the queen always wore a wore white as a backdrop to the blue royal sash and other colorful, colorful or, or adornments. 
Um, but she really, she rocked the, at this time, she really rocked the fashion scene on her 90th birthday when she showed up wearing a lime green suit designed by Stuart Parvin that was so bright, it got its own hashtag, hashtag neon at 90. I love it. <laughs> I love cool things. Wow. She was a queen with spears. So... And unfortunately, at this time there, she lost her husband, Prince Philip. Um, and I'm sure we all saw the image of her sitting uh, is that of the queen, a mourning widow, as she sat alone at his funeral, dressed all in black. She wore all black and her brightest Richmond brooch, though. She had a very bright, <clears throat> excuse me, brilliant Richmond brooch was gifted to her by her grandmother in 1893. Um, it was during COVID time, so she wore a black face mask to the, the, due to the restrictions. And she sat alone because she felt that fathers had to grieve alone. So would she, because you know, uh, during COVID, people were grieving alone and were not allowed to attend funerals and things like that. Uh, and another thing I want to mention is that uh, I mentioned it earlier, she supported UK fashion. Um, so in 2018, she um, decided to inaugurate the Queen Elizabeth II Award for British Design. And that award is given to a young and up and coming designer. And the first one at that time was Richard Quinn. But she um, she started all that. She, she was a proponent. She supported the British fashion industry, which, of course, brings money to, you know, to the country with the sure. The sewing, the designing, the textiles and all of that. And one of her last photographs was in 2022. And that was at the, that's of the Queen of Balmoral greeting Liz Truss, her last prime minister. And she was, she's dressed in her most comfortable clothes then, tartan skirt and a cardigan. Um, at home, she did not need the bright clothes. It was much as a, a much more subdued type of look at home. Yes. What's the hush-hush about her wardrobe and accessories? Quite a few hush-hush. <laughs> so uh, one of the things about the queen, she and we probably don't think she did this, but she rewore and adapted her clothes with the average lifespan of an outfit running up to 25 years. She didn't throw stuff out. Um, and often she handed it down to other people before th just tossing it away. So... But every effort was also made to ensure that the queen did not repeat outfits. It was done intentionally. When outfits were repeated or reworn, it was a planned event for some, I, I don't know what the reason behind was, but it might be a special event and also. But she has been, in some of her books that I've looked at, fashion books, you can see different. There are pictures of her wearing the same outfit to about four different events, so. Um, the queen herself would select the fabrics for her clothes, and she worked alongside her personal dresser, who was also her designer, Angela Kelly. Um, she almost always wore black leather shoes with a low two-inch heel, and that those were made by a company called Covent Gardner Shoemaker, Anello and David. And she had to be comfortable on her feet, so she had to 
What she did is she had someone break in her new shoes. Every single new pair of shoes will be broken into. So in her 2019 book about dressing the queen, Angela Kelly, her personal dresser, and I quote, revealed a flunky wears in her majesty's shoes to ensure that they are comfortable and that she is always good to go. And yes, I am that flunky. So apparently Angela Kelly was the person that would wear the shoes and break them in. And when she wore the shoes, she had to wear a pair of beige cotton ankle socks while doing so. And then she could only walk on a carpet during the period of the breaking in of the shoes. Mm -hmm. We got the shoes. They were comfortable. And often she had to stand for a couple of hours. So, so, you know, they had to keep her comfortable. It kind of makes sense to really do that. Maybe I need to hire someone to break in my shoes. So it's a good idea to wear them around the house before you wear them out. That's true. (laughs) So so anyway, the queen also regularly showcased pieces from her extensive personal collection of jewels and would often loan them to members of her family for a special occasion. And you know what they used to, um, to, to uh, keep those beautiful diamonds nice and sparkly. What gin, did, how did they clean them? Gin and water. <laughs> they used gin and water used to give royal diamonds that extra spark. Gin and water? I'm going to have to try oh, it. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> my sense of, bless you. My gin sense. and water. I got to remember that. That's, that's a way I can buy alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I said, I'm going to have to try that with my extensive collection of diamonds, which I don't have. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you do, but regardless, yeah. whatever our jewelry is, even faux gems probably shine right up. <laughs> I'm going to give that. I haven't given it a try, but I'm going to try it. So, yeah, it's a good tidbit. Anyway, her extensive collection of jewels are um, they're kept under armed guard in the Tower of London, where they can be viewed by tourists. And I, I've had the privilege, of course, of with, along with many, many of us, to see the crown jewels. Yes. Uh, are gorgeous um so anyway so that's a little bit about the hush hush yes well i uh got to see the crown jewels also when i went with a group of women when i lived in new york and we worked for a buying office uh some of the stores and i went over and we did uh, a trip to uh italy and france and of course london and then on to Japan. But while we were there, we got to see the crown jewels. But boy, they're beautiful. They are. They are. time for sure. Yeah, they are. They're, 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 everyone, if anyone's in London, don't miss the crown jewels. <laughs> so they're always probably handed down to family. But what happens to the wardrobe, the clothing itself? Like since the queen died, I wonder what happens to all of her clothes, her beautiful shoes, her beautiful bags, her beautiful clothing tossed out. They're not. The queen's wardrobe and and jewelry and other accessory will likely uh, be split between Kate Middleton and the queen consort Camilla, um, according to royal experts. That's probably, I don't know if it has taken place. It it may have already. Um, Kate will get first preference and the queen consort will get the leftovers. (laughs) Okay. Well, unfortunately, we have just about used up every second of our show. 
And we have just a couple of seconds left. And I want to thank you so much, Sally. You gave us a history lesson beyond a history lesson on Queen Elizabeth. And I, you have just done a fantastic job. I know my listeners are going to be sending me a million uh, emails after the show telling me how fabulous it was. I can't thank you enough, Sally. Welcome. Thank you. And uh, thank your audience for inviting me into their lives. <laughs> yes. And th- and I thank everyone for tuning in. And uh, hopefully we will absolutely never, any of us alive today, will ever forget Queen Elizabeth II and all of her beauty and majesty that she brought to us and all of the many um, uh wonderful events that we got to witness in the fashion industry and her clothing and how how selective she was as well as sensitive about the country she was visiting and the colors that they enhanced their political uh, state. So thank you so much, Sally, for informing us of so much. And I want everyone to tune in next Tuesday to the Space of the Waste again, now at 12 o'clock. Uh, in the mountain in the uh, pacific standard time and thank you again signing off thank you for listening to the space of the waste please join host melody edmondson again next tuesday at 3 p.m eastern time and noon pacific time on the voice america variety channel we'll see you next time